What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Dragzine Podcast. I'm your host, Senior Associate Editor, Senior Editor Brian Wagner. Things are crazy around here because I'm with Kurt Johnson, track prep guru, occasional long-haired hippie. What's going on, Kurt? Not much, man. Glad to see you. Yeah, the, the long-haired Jesus thing's gone. I uh, I had to go back to a high and tight. Yeah, you're, you're looking fresh now, looking like your, uh, your Marine Corps days, am I right? Exactly. People were telling me I was looking like a long-haired hippie, and they, they, they wanted the high and tight back, so here yeah. it is. Got to keep the people happy, right? Got to keep the racers yeah. happy one way or another. Exactly. Because it, to- it, it totally matters when you're scraping the track or you're on the tractor, right? <laughs> exactly. Everybody knows there's still a surfboard in my past. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know, it, it's funny you mentioned your past, and everybody's got their own history and story about got them into drag racing. And I think it would be interesting kind of to hear your story kind of the, the epic ballad of Kurt Johnson insanity, because I'm sure that there's a lot of fun twists and turns, because honestly, I don't even know it because, you know, I, I'm, you had to start racing at some point. What got you into it? So l- let's hear it, man. Tell tell our viewers and readers what. what wow. I hope you got a few minutes because it's a long, daunting story. It's a tale of, of misery. Now, <laughs> how I got into this was... Um, I wanted to go racing and I didn't really have the money to go racing. So I, uh, this is back, I'm from Colorado and uh, I had a little pro, pro mod style truck. I tried to get it sponsored for years and years and, and it's hilarious looking back on it. Um, our company merged with another company from England. And at the same time we were in the concrete business and the uh, this is in 95, somewhere around there. And the economy was screaming and you couldn't get enough truck drivers to drive concrete trucks. The two companies merged together and uh, one was union, one was non-union. 300 total trucks and we lost 100 drivers that day. Um, so, I mean, they were, I mean, to put it mildly, they were shitting bricks. That's a lot of money. And I came up with this scheme, I guess you could almost call it, that, hey, if you sponsor the race truck and we we get a big semi and everything that goes with it, we can hire truck drivers. And uh, shoot, the the CEO fell in love with it. He thought it was an awesome idea. And uh, so they gave me, you know, the, the funds to go racing. And in turn of that, he says, oh, and by the way, I need you to build a school to train them sure that can't be a problem anyway we did it and the the program was a huge success uh and it gave me funding to go racing and really i mean you know it and and all the people listening to the show that racing's a drug i mean you know when it gets in your vein you'll you'll do what it takes to make it happen and we built this program and and we had huge success with it um and it's kind of funny, the sponsor, I mean, I know you work with sponsor stuff, but I still have it. The first proposal I gave these guys, it was like 70 pages. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's detailed. That's detailed. That's more detailed than some people's business plans. It had charts and graphs and, and it was hilarious to see that. I look back at it every now and then and it's an absolute, it would get thrown across a room into a trash can in somebody else's office nowadays i mean you know now i understand that you want a one-page white paper 
back then I didn't know that stuff. I built this proposal. Anyway, the program went off and we, we didn't have a lot of success racing. I mean, we were trying to go really fast. Uh, we used small blocks and we blew a lot of stuff up. But that was kind of part of the original deal was I made it really clear from the get-go that the, the semi side and the show to go get drivers, that's yours. The racing's mine. And they never really pushed me to perform. Um, but the, the amount of education we got, you, you, you can't buy what we did buy it. But, um, <laughs> I mean, we, we blew a ton of crap up. And, uh, I mean, there were, it's funny, as I look back, like we just did a show with a bunch of oil downs. And, and I get really upset when somebody oils the entire track down. And then a little, something little inside my back of my head goes, do you remember the time that the sweeper driver at Vandermeer pulled up in your pit, got out of his truck, and said, you guys got your shit together? <laughs> I mean, seriously, those things, when I'm getting ready to get pissed off at somebody, that comes into my mind. You remember when, I mean, you boiled the whole track down several times. That, that's the John Force treatment when the safety safari sees them come up and they're like, oh, back in the day, they're like, oh, boy, get ready, guys. Oh, God. I mean, we, we can tell horror stories, too. But, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, there's a lot of – you go back to some of those stories where literally they'd go up and they go, hey, you need to go somewhere else and make seven runs. <laughs> and, and when you don't oil the track down, you can come back and play. Well, that was kind of us. Oof. And uh, But at the same time, we learned a ton. Um, I mean, I, I, I really learned the basis of performance and racing, and I think that's kind of why I'm good at what I do. Um because I understand what it takes to make a car go down the racetrack. And, and I understand being on a team side um, as the, you know, when the economy crashed, uh, this program with, this was with aggregate industries. Um, I think it went for six, six or seven years when the economy crashed in the early 2000s. Obviously they, um, they didn't need truck drivers anymore. And, uh, shoot they couldn't fill the trucks they had uh, i mean they they couldn't put business in the trucks they had so the the program went away at that point i think that was about 2003 um and that's kind of a funny story right there they called me into the office and uh it was black friday at that place that's what it's been known as i think 80 people left left the property that day and uh they came in and, and it doesn't matter the details on the severance, but they, they offered me a severance that, I mean, it was incredible. <laughs> and they said, okay, here's the deal. You can go back into uh, concrete quality control. And I was making really good money and you can make the same money you're making now. You'll be in a, either a concrete planter and quality control, or we'll write you this check. And I saw the number on the check and I went sign that thing. <laughs> and, so I had a little bit of money in my pocket. I didn't know what I was going to do and, and went off into uh, sponsorships. And, so I, and a lot of that was tractor pulling and rodeo and really grassroots stuff. Um, but PRCA Rodeo has some of the best sponsorships in the country. And I mean, like the Dodge truck program, that's the longest running sponsorship of anything. 
And so I learned a ton about sponsorships through that. And it was kind of a, a flat period of my life, but it was kind of like going to college. And I learned a lot about the business side of, of not so much motorsports, but events. Um, I mean, we did motorsports stuff. We did a lot of rodeo and tractor pulling. So I, I learned small grassroots stuff, saw a lot of big stuff, big deals, little deals. And but it was like going to college. And uh, and I'm going to bounce through this real quick because we could spend, I got killer stories just on that alone, um, learning about tractor pulling and rodeo. <laughs> uh, but from there, uh, I'd met Mike Lewis from Schumacher along the way. And uh, Mike came to me one day and, and said, hey, hey, we had chatted and I said, yeah, I wouldn't mind working for you guys. They were a lot smaller company. Then. And uh, he called me one day and they were in Las Vegas, and uh, he said, can you come get a, a truck? It's, it's out in New Mexico. Bring it to the race in, in Vegas. And, uh, so I did, and uh, I never went home to my house. A couple months later, three months later, nah, it was no longer. I never went back and uh, moved Brownsburg and, and worked for Schumacher. There again, all the uh, working with the cars and the crews, uh, and it was that was back when it had become a big operation. I mean, had eight teams going all the time. Seems like 32 tractors and trailers. Uh, and there again, just a huge learning experience. Um, from there, I went over to NHRA and uh, uh, worked in once again sponsorship side of things marketing activation um but it was a cool time in nhra too because i mean it was raleigh was there raleigh miller um foster was still out on the tour all the time cal was in who still was safari was safari ron connor randy jenkins and it was really compartmentalized back in the day the racetrack guys didn't mess with the marketing guys marketing guys didn't mess with the medical guys and, and in that little time period everybody gelled and it became it was an awesome crew and uh just it, it was a fun time and uh god we had a good time uh, it's one of the best times of my life running around with nhra um, worked for Glenn Cromwell and uh, Glenn was just a wealth of mentorship and knowledge and then and, and I'm jumping all over the place and you might go God I never want to be around you again but you think about some of the big guys in, in drag racing from the facility standpoint and, and sanctioning body but you got Chris Blair who uh, you know he's at Worldwide Technology really has brought that place up. Used to be at Vegas. Ned Walliser, who who was monitor and, and uh, over all the national events. And Glenn Cromwell. Those guys, they come from tractor pulling. They were all part of the, the, uh, the origins of, of tractor pulling back when you saw it on Diamond P. And, and, uh, and they did crazy shows and then started bringing monster trucks in and 
and did freak shows during the monster trucks. And a lot of people kind of laugh at that because um, it was a show. But they filled arenas five nights. <laughs> yeah. And there were times that as that grew bigger, um, they'd have four or five shows going at the same time all over the country. And that was as it went more into the monster truck. But where I'm going with that is is we still have these guys in the industry. And, you know, Glenn's running the NHRA. Chris is running worldwide. And and, uh, and Ned is over the national events at NHRA. And uh, and obviously owned that huge shirt company yeah. that you know, supplied all the shirts. So it's uh, where I'm going with that is you had all these mentors to go off of. And uh, owe them a ton because I just learned a lot from them. And uh, just sitting in the tower, Chris used to be at Las Vegas before Worldwide, just listening to the stories. And yeah, they're fun stories back and forth, but you're learning a ton of information as they're talking. So it's kind of a fun classroom. Speaking of fun stories, you're kind of in a famous video where uh, Tony Petragon and John Force have a, a, a slight disagreement. And I've, <laughs> I've, I've, I want, you know, everybody knows that side of it. Talk about, you know, it, it's funny you see in movies sometimes you'll see a, a character see something unfold from a different angle. What did you see unfold? Kind of talk about that situation. Have you ever heard this before? I mean, I, you, seriously? Okay. I, have, I have not heard it. That's that's why I ask it. I'm like, if yeah, I okay. haven't heard it, I bet there's other people that haven't heard it. So if you watch the video, um, I still look the same. I mean, but I used to always wear Oakland's. That was, I mean, I don't know why, but I, I just like the sunglasses. And plus, they really allow you to see things because of the Oakley polarization is different. You can see things that you can't with the open eye. But anyway, so I've got, I think, model, model necks or something on. And these two start roaring. And they're, at first, you think they're going to have a little tiff. And then you realize they're going to scrap. And this ain't a show. This is for real. And uh, so I'm just trying to stay in between them. And this is kind of the funny part. There's another fight going between crew members just off to the right that you can't see. Oh, nice. So that's in peripheral vision. But as these two are going at it, Graham almost never talked to me, Graham Light. And he was on a different channel. And uh, But I've got an earbud in, obviously. And so I'm holding these two back. And all of a sudden, this voice that sounds like God comes into my ear. And it says, Kurt, you're on live television. Don't hit them back. <laughs> and, and that was about when John swung at Tony and I mean, by no means did John mean to hit me. Uh, Tony was just quicker than John and Tony moved and so the roundhouse kind of connected and it's just a funny though just this low slow deep voice Kurt if he hits you don't hit him back. And if you watch the video, it's like you can see me literally look up. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so, I mean, it's a pretty good story. Yeah, because yeah, I've seen that clip a few times and it always cracks me up. And I was like, I, you know, 
Imagine you're Kurt Johnson just, you know, doing doing your job and all of a sudden two of the biggest names in drag racing decide that they're gonna throw down right in front of you. It's like but they don't they don't give you that kind of training at the annual kickoff meeting. Oh, and and I could see it from the other people's viewpoint. I mean, everybody knows I got moments where I'm kind of a hothead. Oh, never. And, uh, <laughs> never. <laughs> and uh, and and so I kind of think once I got hit there that they were thinking I might come loose. And I knew it was just wrong place, wrong time. I wasn't going to get irritated about it. And. Uh, you know, afterwards, John just apologized time after time. He did not mean to do that. But it was also, it was kind of cool being in between that much emotion. Because when it first started, I'm not kidding, I thought it was part of the show. I, you know. Just kind of the old, and, uh, and then quickly I realized, these, these boys are serious. It, it, it's funny that, you know, people kind of wrung their hands when uh, Steve Torrance and Cameron kind of went at it. I'm like, you got to remember, this ain't the first time that it's been caught on camera. That doesn't include the stuff that hasn't been caught on camera, right? Oh, I mean, I was always on that end of the track. So it, some of the guys were, they were, it was pretty amazing. Some of the stuff that happened down there that was never on camera. Um, Al, why can't I think of Al's name? Um, Hoffman? Yeah, Al Hoffman. Al Hoffman. Uh, many times was hot down at the other end. And a lot of them. It's an emotional sport. And so there is tempers that flare here and there. Al, Al Hoffman is not someone I would want to cross because he looks like he would finish his Budweiser and then smash the bottle on you if the he was a, time he was a big meat. I mean, yeah, he's a big guy. I mean, when you think about it, we got a lot of big guys that race that have tempers. Oh, and there again, you, when you're down on that end, you, you never get emotional yourself about it because you, you just you realize, and it's nice sitting in the seat for a while because you know how emotional it is. It's, you know, you're putting everything in to, to getting that win. And I'm not... Um, the bat phone. Sorry, <laughs> I uh, I'm not knocking. So nobody take this as I'm knocking NHRA. I think it's part of what we're missing now. Is um, they're too nice. They're too clean. They're too vanilla. Um, I I go back a lot. I, I worked for Ed for a while, uh, McCullough, and. Uh, go back to the days of, of of Ed the Ace. I mean, we, we had a great shirt that got distributed, and I still keep it. It's one I don't wear, but it's got the Ace of Spades on it, and on the back of it, it says, don't get aced, and it's got Ed leaning in the window of an old Dodge truck, pulling a guy out of it, ready to clock him, and, and it says, don't get aced, but I, I think that's a lot of what we're missing now was the emotions were so high. It was about the drivers back then, not about the cars. Now I think it's a lot more about the cars and not the drivers. And I think people, you, I, him, but might go buy a ticket. But we like the performance, but we don't really care about the cars. We care about the emotional connection. 
Oh, I was watching on Flow Racing the Dirt, the Gateway Nationals, and they were showing from a couple years. Was it last year? The last time they had it, two dudes. You know, that's a very small bullring track. There was a little contact. One guy wrecked the other, and they're interviewing these guys, but they can hear the interview over the entire PA. Well, apparently they started taking issues with it. The one dude kicked the other's car that's on the hook. They're like fight, they're like they're start fighting live on the show, like legit throwing punches. Tackles are happening. That's what's awesome about dirt track racing that is definitely missing from drag racing is that like the the not not the fighting per se, but the the showing of the raw emotion these days. That's I, I emotion. Sometimes fights come out of emotion. Um, but the, like the deal with Torrance, um, I, I never looked down on him at it. The guy was emotional. And uh, and I think people relate to that. Um, you look back at, at some of the greats, they were just emotional. And uh, I mean, yeah, Warren Johnson. Uh, grumpy. They... They brought emotion out, and people connect with that. They don't. Uh, I mean, we all want each other to stay safe, but you kind of get tired of the at the other end of the track. The I'm just glad that we're both safe, and, and that was a good race. When really, what you want to hear is, I'm running for a championship, and when we're out on that racetrack, I'm going to rip your throat out. And I think we've lost some of that. Yeah, we might be best friends back in the pits, and we might drink beer, but I'm out for your jugular when we're racing. Need more? We need more single, single figure salutes and more emotion. That, that's what's. Yeah. Well, and on the positive side, of that you know, it, it, this year, uh, no mercy. I interviewed Manny Bajinga at the top end. I'm going over to interview him after one pro two seventy five. Dude straight tackled me. Like I was not expecting to get tackled by him. And it was just the emotion <laughs> of the moment. And I'm like, you know, the camera guy, wasn't quite sure what to do. I'm like, keep the roll. this is what it's all about right here. It's just, uh, I, I wasn't quite ready for the tackle and hug, but it just, it, again, it's, that's what makes people want to watch and root for the racers and the drivers. Yep. And, uh, I mean, we're, we're getting ready to do this PRI seminar. And a lot of that is what we're going to talk about is, is uh, it, it's one of all the different tracks. We need to remember how to build shows again. And uh, you look at Norwalk and Nine Under Fire. The reason that show is so successful, I believe, is a it's a great show, and b you got you got Bill Bader out there on the racetrack in a tuxedo telling the story, and that's the way you look at it when. When you work at Norwalk, that show is a story from the beginning to the end, and it lets that those forty to sixty thousand people that come in for that one night, they let them. He leads them through a story with ups and downs all the way, and I believe that's. It's not about the jet cars and the nitro cars. That's just that's the media to create the emotion, and we need more of that. It absolutely drives me insane that more track promoters don't use the tools that they're free advertising tools at their disposal between social media and YouTube 
in the available racers because you could spit and hit a pro mod race in the midwest there or top sportsman cars put together a quick 16 show put out a simple video get people to come and guess what they will come the bracket racers will come and you know what i guarantee you there are plenty of people that would bring a couple kids out to catch a quick 16 show with blown pro mods it's not like you don't like oh well the payouts and this that and the other if you give the racers a suitable surface a payout to make it worth their while and the opportunity to test they're going to come do it yeah i i hold i completely agree and the other is i'm <laughs> this is probably not good for business but we and that that being the track prep community We've created a monster, and uh, we watch tractors out on the racetrack more than we watch race cars. And because we have these incredible racetracks, we're pulling over real quick because strings came off the load, but um, we, we have these flypaper racetracks that you can pretty much throw anything you want at, but it takes us hours during the show to build them. And um, nobody wants to watch a final at 2 a.m., uh, which is what we're creating. And so that's, it's a, a challenge that I've really put forth to, to my inner circle is, uh, and the shows we do. Um, we either got to throw more equipment at it, or we need to go easier on the track prep. Um, because uh, Brian Loans wrote a great article i don't know if you read it um I, I i suggest everybody read it because it's an incredible article about exactly what i'm talking about is yeah watching the tractors out on the racetrack more than anything and you and i have had conversations about it um and it's my business but as as it being part of my business and somewhat being one of the leaders in this we've got to figure out how to make this happen and uh, and more enjoyable to the fans. It's it's part of the beauty of the race we do in in Las Vegas. Obviously, we had problems with Las Vegas this year. Just just a few. Um, just a few. Oh my God! Um, Fifty two oil downs or crashes. But when things go correctly there, um, we're working <laughs> on one track and we're racing on another track, so it's constant show. Uh, and as an industry, we need to take notes off that. Um, Tyler and Jimmy doing a really good job uh, at the Virginia races of getting it done quick and efficient. And part of that is they throw in a armada of equipment at it. And uh, so anyway, I don't wanna bore your listeners with that, but it's something that I really think we need to think about as, as track promoters, operators, and, and people who do the job is we've gotta get these shows done. A step beyond that, racers need to learn that you're not going to get flypaper tracks all the time. You know, there's been plenty of times where me, Litz, and Andrew would go to an event and we knew it was going to be not flypaper. You had to tune, stay with me here, you had to tune the car to get down the surface. You couldn't just turn on 11 and let it rip. You mean it's got less than 11? Yeah, like it took, yeah, like. (laughs) I mean, you I know, know, 
they had, you know, the, like these things, travel limiters and power management and read the track, you know, it, there's nothing wrong with having events where you can absolutely let a rip tater chip. But like you said, there's a time and place for that. People have a limited attention span. And I think this all links back to, well, back in, you know, we'll say the seventies and eighties and nineties, you know, those stands were full times have changed Gord. We got to, we got to change with the times we got to give people bing bong boom, go to an NHRA show. You get bing bong boom. You know, when the pros are coming out, you know, what's happening. Granted the sportsman racers do suffer at that point. But again, the nitro puts the butts in the seats and people, we forget that. I think, in my opinion, talking to a few different people, I think there's going to be a forced reset that happens. And I think that that is going to be due to outside forces and people are going to have to put on their big boy pants and realize we have to modernize with the times. That's my rant on we that. Do. No, I, I think it's a great one. I mean, read who, who moved my cheese. Well, guess what? The cheese moved. Yeah. And, and we've got to adapt to it. And uh, obviously I want to keep my business uh, going the way it is. And so I, it's one of my big challenges is to adapt to it and, and still give you a good racetrack, but do it in a much more timely fashion. We've been working hard at it. And there's guys, Wade Rich is, is very good at doing a, a short process and having a very good racetrack. And, uh, and I think it, like in MCA, we do a pretty good job. Um, if you could listen to the radio, there is a ton. <clears throat> time is the essence. And we've got to work more and more on that because uh, this this six hours of track prep during what could be a six hour show. We can't do that anymore. Nobody's watching it and nobody gets to see we're talking about emotion. Nobody gets to see that in the motion of, of the money shot, what the guy went in, you know? Um, well, well, I was going to say, we're going to take a quick break here on the drag zine podcast. Yeah. When we come back, I've actually got a question that plays right into this. That's going to keep this great conversation going. So stay with us. We'll be right back on the drag zine podcast. Copcams introduces the Rocker Arm Stud Kits for GMLS and Dodge Hemi applications. Compcam's Rocker Arm Stud Kits provide the best retention for the Rocker Arms in your GMLS or Dodge Hemi applications. These new Rocker Arm Stud and Nut assemblies from Compcams allow for improved clamping load, adding up to a more rigid, stable, and high revving valve train assembly. Additionally, these Rocker Arm Stud Kits help to save the threads in your aluminum cylinder heads especially in race applications that see consistent disassembly. The stud kit also aids during installation of shaft rocker arm systems by accurately guiding the rocker arm assembly into position. You can learn more at compcams.com. All right, we're back with Kurt Johnson, who's on the road traveling to God knows where. He's probably trying to go prep some snow somewhere for someone to race on because he can prep anything. (laughs) And speaking of that, you know, we were talking about track prep earlier. You've helped create all kinds of surfaces all over the world, building fresh ones, rehabbing other ones. And this plays into, I think, what we were talking about with timeliness. What kind of goes into creating one of these surfaces and maintaining it that might surprise people? Because Lord knows I hear all the time, just put more glue on it. And to someone that knows what's going on, that makes you like have a small seizure because that's usually the last thing you want to do. I agree. I mean, and I call it spray and pray. You know, there's a lot of spray and pray out there. But really, 
a good surface is four things. Scrape it, wash it, spray it, and drag it, repeat. If you have a clean surface that's scraped, you'll almost always have a good surface. And there's there's times you got to come in during a show and do a quick scrape, and, and that's part of the reason we built these mechanized scrapers that, that make it happen so much quicker. I mean, what used to take us 25 minutes to scrape 60 foot, we can do two grooves in seven minutes now. But that's the key is, I mean, they call it prep for a reason. Uh, whenever I sell a show or sell an event to somebody, if it's a one-day show, we're charging them for two because we're coming in. If it's a Saturday show, we're coming in Friday and prep, prepping the racetrack. Um, it's all about what happens before the show. If you're doing track prep, if you're really trying to do track prep during the show, you're reacting. You haven't been proactive. And uh, when you have it right before the show, the day before, you don't have to do a lot during the show. Um, I mean, just quick maintenance, but yeah, it generally takes the entire day before. I mean, we'll go out, we do it mechanically now because we're old, fat, and lazy, but we have scrapers, and so we scrape the whole racetrack, and then it's really important to wash it afterwards because you're, it's ash, and uh, you're putting ash on. You can't, it's no different than painting a car. Is uh, got to keep the racetrack clean and your your glues and rubber will adhere better and then just like painting a car it's about building layers you go out the day before and, and you start building layers you start with nothing put a little bit of glue on it put a coat of rubber on it put a little bit more glue on it coat of rubber and and you do that multiple times and it usually takes all day i mean we generally have eight to ten hours in building the racetrack if you want national event quality. And uh, and that's part of the reason it's not cheap. Uh, I mean, we're not a, really that expensive, but at the same time, you can't go in and, and plan on paying for four hours worth of work. It's gonna be, you know, there's a considerable amount of effort that goes into it. Just scraping a racetrack money-wise, um, I, I put, I'm huge in Excel sheets. Um, put an Excel sheet together a long time ago for Bader so we could figure out how much it costs to scrape these tracks and it's fifteen to twenty five hundred dollars every time you scrape the racetrack all the way down. The machines have cut that down to a thousand dollars, twelve hundred dollars. It's mostly because we cut five people out of the equation. But that's the biggest thing to me is scraping, scraping it and cleaning. From there it's pretty easy to build the racetrack. Yeah, and I've seen you guys work, you know, at LS Fest and the NMRA finals and stuff like that and other events where it's like you guys are out there. It doesn't matter what the conditions are. As long as it's workable, you're out there. It's like uh, it's almost like you're making a sculpture. You're, you're working with the material and you're, you're building this base. And then, like you said, that way during, you know, the event, again, that's how I can tell the difference between, honestly, a track that knows how to properly prep and one that doesn't because you'll see a quick, quick scrape shuffle during times. And other times it's the static drag, quick spray, send them, just send it and go. Yep. It, I mean, when it's right, it's right. And obviously you got weather conditions that come in and play and you, 
you got to react to the weather conditions. But when when weather is what you expect it to be, and you've been proactive, there's not much to do. Yeah. And uh, you might have to react to heat. Yeah, they are. The, the, the heat is always, again, it's one of those things that I think that it's part of this what I'm going to call the new circle of track life that we need to go about is how you prep for stuff and to keep the show rolling and racers need to adjust their expectations accordingly and my you know again if you've got a fast car you should be able to be get it down the track you know a bracket guy if you're spinning with those big old slickety slacks that might not necessarily be the track's fault you know what I'm saying right you gotta adjust for it that's part of the deal I, it doesn't matter if it's radials or slicks. I see it so much. Track's junk. Track's not junk. Uh, did you watch your car leave? You ex- look at your tire tracks here. You hop the tires five times right here. Your shocks are all the way out. <laughs> the, the best story around that was I was at Tyler's last race at Beach Bend. I'm not going to say who the racer was. But they were wearing him out around the burnout box about the track is junk, this, that, and the other. Meanwhile, Hancock, Jamie Hancock does his burnout, backs up, and just absolutely lights the board up with some crazy number. And, like, everybody saw it, and Tyler just does a slow turn and looks at the guy. And he just was like, you have anything else to say? And the guy just turns around and walks right off. And I'm like, I mean. Bingo. You know, it, it wasn't a fluke because I guess, I guess what? A pro mod came up in the other lane on a slick tire lane, went right down Broadway, you know? You you can't swing for the fences all the time. You got to be able to tune around what's going on to work with that surface. Yeah, no, it's, um, I see it a lot with um, weekly bracket guys. Um, and I'm, I like bracket racing. I think bracket racing is the backbone of drag racing. Um, but to me, the hardest car to get down the racetrack is an older 520 hardtail dragster for a few reasons. Partially, the guy who owns it, but owns that car, uh, you know, he basically puts fuel in it and goes and runs. There's not a lot of tuning to it. It's a hardtail. But I see a lot of them spin, and they'll come up, and they'll be like, man, I'm all over the place. I'm, I'm three numbers run to run. And you can just look at their tire prints, leave them. And you're like, you got way too much tire pressure. And you can see the cars hopping or you got way too less. You get a lot of people that think that taking air out of the tire gives you more traction. Uh... Um, <laughs> and, and there's times you got to pick your battle. And when, when the guy's bitching about that, just say, well, I hope you hope you find it and, and walk away um, there's also the tuners out there that you listen to and, and you know who they are and I mean you learn to, to know when when Jamie Miller comes up and says we're moving around in the middle your middle's probably weak yeah. <laughs> yeah. there are people that you listen to yeah totally I'm not saying I'm going to go change the track because Jamie Miller tells me something's going on in the middle but I'm going to go look at it (laughs) yeah and I think again it's the onus you know to not you know 
put it all on the racers per se. It also comes down to, you know, building that surface for the track. You have to understand that, you know, I, th I think a lot of tracks need to work on that too. Instead of just, you know, presenting people with a terrible track and telling them to tune around it, you got to put some effort into it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we see a lot of, of tracks that it's not that they don't care. They don't know. And, uh, use an example uh, it doesn't matter what track but uh it's got pretty good ripple in the in the pavement from 200 to 300 well you better go work that area harder and because the car is going to struggle there anyway so let's give them something that when the tire is on the ground it can grab you know kind of moving off of this you know sometimes you really have to think outside the box to get the job done no matter what you're doing what are some more of the uh, interesting things that you've had to do to a racetrack surface to uh, bend it to your will? Because I like I've seen them set on fire, which I don't understand. But what's some of the stuff that you've had to do? So I've set racetracks on fire by accident. I don't believe in setting them on fire. Uh, and just a great story with that because Ralph started laughing. Last year we were uh, there again at like an NMCA event. We're humping because we're trying to get the show done quickly. And um, so we're, we're scraping 60 foot. Thomas is, we've already finished the left lane. And there again, to me, seconds matter. And so we finish the left lane. He goes down with the sprayer to the eighth mile or quarter, I don't remember which. Turns around and he's waiting for us to call go on the right lane. We got it, we've just finished scraping it. We're doing two drags on it. And then he's going to spray it. And, uh, and it's hot out. We're tired. Believe it or not, I might have been grumpy. Um, nah. Yeah, I know. Go figure. And he's coming down the racetrack. We've called spray. And he's coming down the racetrack. I'm standing all the way across the racetrack. And right at the starting line, there is a, uh, a little piece of burning rubber. Uh-oh. And it's too late. It's like slow motion, you know, or you're trying to call on the radio, nothing. And he drives over that burning rubber spraying. And the only thing I really got out on the radio was pour it and turn it off. <laughs> because the whole starting line just exploded and, uh, and went up in fire. But with that said, I don't really believe in burning. I think when you burn traction compound, you burn the good stuff out of it. When you heat stuff, and change, it changes chemically. And so I, I don't believe that burning, burning traction compounds are the right way to do it. Well, Other, I mean, so I know you've been to Atlanta, dressed in peace. But when they put the new asphalt in, uh, it, it had been there for one national event, and then we came in. And there was no rubber out there. I mean, there was none. And it's a fair, it wasn't fairly, it was a very porous asphalt. So you got a whole bunch of porosity in it, really hard to get rubber to stick to it. And uh, so we went out and we put oil dry on it. I sprayed it. We went out and put a couple bags of oil dry on it, drug it in. And then we sprayed it again. We did that like six times, seven times. And we, we filled that porosity with oil dry and spray. And my God, it worked. 
and and we were able to build a surface out of it. And I'm positive that in the base, in the true base of that, even though it's been scraped, there is still hundreds of pounds of oil dry um, as part of the asphalt. That's stupid if it works. Yep. So, I mean, but boy, we had racers looking at it. What are you doing? And, and it worked. Um, trying to think of other things that have been crazy. What, what uh, about and, the, the time at Norwalk where I remember this, where to you started literally spraying water on the track in the middle of the day and didn't tell anybody. And it was like, the, the funny looks on people's faces, you know, what, what was the story behind that deal? Well, I, I so sometimes you got to just try stuff. And I'd seen tracks down south. And remember when I was at Norwalk, I hadn't traveled a ton. Pretty much traveling for me had been NHRA, national event tracks. But I'd seen pictures and heard about small southern tracks that had sprinklers on the wall. And uh, so we try. And are you talking about when we did it in the sprayer or when we did it with the water truck? I saw it with did both. I think I saw it with the sprayer because I literally sprayer. turned around. I'm like, why is the track look like a, you know, a skid pad? Well, and honestly, I do that quite a bit. Um, the sprayer thing works. It. So I, I can't explain it because it doesn't really cool the surface down. You think about this huge mass of concrete, gigantic heat. And, but if you run a sprayer with water in it down, it buys you 20 minutes. And uh, whether it's just, it, it allows the traction compound and rubber to unite, uh, you know, for the molecules to shrink, it buys you 20 minutes, maybe a little bit more. You can spray pure methanol on a track and it will buy you some time when it's greasy out. And uh, if you remember that, what the weekend you're talking about at Norwalk, the track was like 160. It was insane. And uh, so we were willing to try anything. And I'm almost sure that same weekend we brought the water truck out and just, we put thousands, tens of thousands of gallons on it called hiatus for an hour and a half or something and just soak the track dry and get a cord. Yeah, that, that's, I, I remember that very well. I'm like, there's got to be a reason why this is being done. I'm going to watch this develop and see what happens. And back then there was, you got to remember really track prep evolved leaps and bounds from 2010 to 2015. I mean, literally stuff was being, that was, you tried stuff outside the box because there was no written rule on radial racing. We didn't know how to do it. Think about radial racing in 2010 compared to what it was when they went 380s in RVW. So in 2010, well, there really wasn't RVW then, but the fast radial cars were running what, 430s? Yeah. And, uh, wasn't Wolf the first one to go 90, I think 99? Um, I thought it was Wolf. Anyway, the, you know, that was probably in 2014, somewhere around there. Um, and just the amount of leaps and bounds track prep took during that time. 
and really it comes down to what we're talking about, putting layers down. But the other, really what we're at right now is trying to figure out how to dry the glue. We're putting so much freaking glue on these things, you can't get them to dry. Yeah, that makes and, sense. Uh, so that, that's really the barrier right now. And I think kind of what you said, I think we're going to hit a plateau like about now <clears throat> where we're going to come down on the track prep. I was going to say, for those that don't know, glue does not instantly stick. I have seen a few drunk people do some front side face plants trying to traverse a freshly glued track. So don't, don't do that. It's also a great way to make the track prep guy very angry at you. A drunk girl at lights out. That's classic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that's one of reference that I, that's one of the ones I saw where I was like, oh, that's, that's going to hurt. It's slick as shit for a while. Yeah. And then also the flypaper side where I've seen people saw a girl fall over sideways and her ankles were still sticking straight up. That was pretty ugly. Yeah, yeah, that's the the old shoe stick. And I tell people, you got to do the radial, I call it the radial tire march. You got to constantly be moving because the second you plant your feet, story's over, you're not going anywhere. Yeah, I, uh, I, I, well, there again, we talk quite a bit, but, you know, I can hardly walk anymore. And it's, it's from being out on those racetracks. And my time's limited as far as being out on the tracks. I probably got two years left and uh, my knees are, are done because of you're on it all day and it's unbelievable the grip we got and I don't want to bore all your people but this is kind of a fun fact you know I've started getting into building tracks and, and working with concrete asphalt and, and putting new materials down on, on both new facilities and recap and old facilities and as we talk to uh, I'm by no means the smartest guy in the world. I've got a great network of people through my cascade of life. And so I'll call people. I use the concrete or the Colorado Concrete Association quite a bit to bounce ideas off. These people can't fathom how much pressure we put the wrong direction on it on pavement. <laughs> Everything they, the way they think is big trucks pushing down. down. That's everything they think. And then you got to come in, slap them for a while, and say, we're never going to have anything heavy on this. We're trying to figure out how to keep this stuff from breaking off. And so we're, we're using things now like epoxy tests, where we're testing concrete, we're putting epoxy on it, and then it's got a big jack that measures rip the face off that. Um, I, I don't know. Coming down the track with a static drag on it for more than 10 seconds. Hey, you're going to stop the show. We're going to have to cut the off the drag and cut the tires off the drag strip. And that's why in the past it's happened a handful of times. If I see a tractor slowing down with an inexperienced guy on it, I'll start going ballistic because you cannot, and a lot of these people don't understand. It's not a bracket track. You cannot stop on these racetracks. Um, when we have a car uh, and you got to push it off, it uh, is a nightmare with the car stick. 
and uh, are you losing me? It was fading in about there. I heard a nightmare about a car. Yeah. So, I mean, just cars sticking to the racetracks, tracks, people, everything sticks to the racetracks. Including wildlife. Absolutely. All right. Well, we're going to... I still got good signal. Should be okay. Well, while Kurt gets his signal figured out here a little bit, we're going to take a quick break on the Dragzine podcast. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the craziest things that Kurt Johnson has seen at the drag strip. I'm looking forward to hearing some of these stories. So we'll be back right here on the Dragzine podcast. Elderbrock introduces its standalone TC transmission controller that provides transmission control over shift points, shift firmness, shift speed, torque converter lockup, shift table, line pressure, speed calibration, and more. The new Elderbrock TC transmission controller is offered as a standalone transmission controller designed to work with Elderbrock Pro Flow 4 and Pro Flow 4 Plus EFI systems and most OE aftermarket fuel injection systems with CAN communications or carbureted applications with an equipped standalone throttle position sensor. It supports GM 4L60E, 4L70E, 4L75E up to 2010, and 4L80E post-1994 transmissions. You can learn more about the TC transmission controller at elderbrock.com. All right, we're back, and hopefully Kurt's with us. Kurt, have you overcome the, the signal issues? Oh, he, he's frozen. Maybe. I don't know. We're trying. Or maybe he's messing with us. Like twice for yes, once for no. Are you a hostage? We can hear the truck in the background. He's still there, Kurt. Are you there? Oh wait, well, <laughs> Max Hedra moment. Wait, we now see the time we got left. There you go. Can you can you hear me now? Uh oh. Kurt? Hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, can you hear me? Yes, yeah, so yeah. if we, we sunk up again. Okay. Yep, I think if you can hear me, I've, I've heard you the whole time. I just don't <laughs> think you can hear me. It, it, what what the, the people that are listening to the podcast might see is sometimes during the mobile signals that, like, it'll freeze slightly, and then it'll look like Kurt's in, like, super fast mode, then back to normal, but... Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that, that, I guess that's kind of how this industry works sometimes. You just got to, like, push through all the fun and the issues, right, Kurt? Yep. So kind of what we've done to help is we've just pulled over. Um, <laughs> We're coming close to the end. I appreciate it. Well, no, no you know, like I mentioned, you've traveled all over the world. Like you said, you've done a lot of stuff. You've seen a lot of things. What are some of the, like, give me a few of the craziest, most interesting things you've seen happen at a drag strip. Cause we've all had those moments where we just kind of pause. We're like, all right, well, that's a new one. You know, what's some of the ones that, of course, you know, that you can tell that the statute limitations have possibly, you know, expired on and whatnot. All right. So it's a PG rated thing. So I got to leave a few out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there's definitely a few that we have to leave out. Um, crash wise, yeah, let's hear uh, some some crash slash catastrophic failure ones where you're like, oh, this is not good. This is this is a funny story, and I don't think he'll care if I tell it. 
Um, so Willard, um, Willard, Willard's flat a badass. I'm Will, Willard Kinzer is a bad man. Willard Kinzer is a bad, bad man. I don't, I'm sure I'm misquoting on this, but didn't he win like a, a hill climb Nitro Harley championship in his late 60s? <laughs> it was in his 50s. It was in his 50s. 50s. Okay. He, won a, he won a hill climb championship in his 50s. Yeah. yeah. I couldn't have done that when I was 19. The dude's a badass. And he had wicked fast cars. Um, Norwalk, NMCA, and uh, everything goes wrong on his run. And I don't. We're still running quarter mile with in the in the radial class. I don't remember how fast he went, but he went really fast. Had a almost a complete. Well, he had a complete engine expiration, fire, brake issues, and uh, and something else went. Oh no, shoot! And uh, so he. He piled it into the wall before the the sand trap to slow down, I believe. And there again, I'm horrible with names. He's racing a guy out of Louisiana, and the guy's huge. Um, I can't think of his name. Gigantic guy. And uh, so the safety trucks are rolling, and obviously NMCA has got a great safety crew. They're rolling towards it, but he's on fire and can't get out or isn't getting out. And uh, God, I wish I could remember this guy's name because it's screwing up the story. But I mean, the guy's like six, seven, 300 pounds. It was a Michael Beely. It was Beely. Thank you. The Mustang. Yep. Thank you. And uh, he pulled Willard out from the passenger side. And, you know, Willard is probably 140 pounds, 150 pounds. And he pulled him out without a whole lot of concern to physical didn't hurt him but as you watched it happen you're like oh my god his legs are gonna break yeah they're gonna get caught on something and uh, and the car is on fire Beely's still in full gear gets him out of the car and he's fine he's got a little bit of smoke in him gets in the ambulance and willard is an incredible personality i mean he's fun to talk to and raleigh miller hops in the ambulance with him and just to make sure he's okay Believe it or not, Raleigh's a really caring person. And uh, uh, so they're in there bullshitting in the, in the ambulance. And they go to get out. And uh, Willard says, I'll re- talking to Raleigh, I'll race you back to the finish line, young man. And I'll whoop your butt. And uh, so they proceed. Raleigh's like, you're on. And they proceed and somehow... Willard tripped as they were taken off on their foot race back and he just comes out of a horrific wreck and falls on this race and, and there were stitches involved on the chin and uh, and so I give Raleigh shit all the time but you know Will, Willard lives through a life changing crash unscathed and, and, and you break his face yeah <laughs> that i mean that was a good one um stevie flying stevie flying affected me quite a bit i don't know it that one was a a hard one to watch and uh, you know obviously he came out of it pretty unscathed but i sure didn't think so 
No, that um, was gnarly. Um, other ones. Uh, What's been one that you've seen that you've like, you've had to clean up afterwards and you're just like, what actually just happened? Like the one recently I just saw was when Logan Yelton, who listens to the show, yeeted a differential out on the track. And, you know, that was, that was definitely one of the more interesting ones I've seen. And they got that truck fixed, but I'm sure you've seen some where you're like, how did this happen? What What's going on well, here? Last weekend. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, last weekend got to the point where we just look at each other. Literally, anytime we felt, if we'd spray the track, something would happen. So we quit spraying the track until we absolutely had to. But um, Kurt Johnson crashing at, I think it was Phoenix, uh, one of the biggest parts debris fields I've ever seen. Ugh. One of those where you, you can't believe you walked out of the car. Looks like a plane crash. Oh, yeah. We had a, it was a good one, NHRA, that's probably in like 2007. Um, a double oil down in, in top alcohol. <laughs> Both lanes, that was, it was before it was a four wide track. And we had at least 2,500 feet of you can't walk on the racetrack oil during a national event i i think it was a hundred bag cleanup oh yeah bags of hunger. um that, that thing was torrential dan shied <laughs> with oh. the diesel top dragster at norwalk it was the only time i've cleaned up oil on the other side of the wall I remember not only that. Did, yeah, it not only did it get the track, it was a pressurized leak and it destroyed the return road in front of the stands. The stain's still there. I, uh, that I remember was a, <laughs> yeah. that was massive. I remember that because I saw that from behind. I was like, I'm like, what's going on here? That's like that's bad. I think that thing had 28 quarts of oil in it. I don't know how much it had, but I know how much it put out. <laughs> all of it yeah yeah um it's funny it's hard to think back you've seen so many and so many of them are are like oh my god um the the and they walked aways uh crashes where you're dreading getting to the car and uh and you see that happy happy face you know that they're happy that they're walking away from it those are pretty great moments. Yeah, but still, you got to wrap up. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Is like, you know, it's uh, but I guess part of the job description for what you do is not only track prep, it's you have to provide janitorial services when someone commits a uh, commits a high energy, you know, disassembly of race car parts. Yep. It. Uh, the oil downs can be absolutely massive. Um, sunroofs. <laughs> sunroofs are the I hate T-tops. Um, or cheap I, Honda I Civic doors. Ask uh, ask uh, Jason Miller about that, cleaning that glass up. So so here's a good one. Uh, I mean, it's and it's just a quick, funny story. But if you look back on my Facebook, you can find the post from it. But we're doing an import event. 
and uh, we see a, a debris, something happens on a car with a parachute and blah, 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 it's a Honda Civic and it's down towards the other end of the track. And we get down there and they bolted the parachute to the back bumper facade. Seems legit. Yep. You know, 11 second car with a parachute. And, but they had to use it and that made a mess. Um, T-tops there again, back windows, T-tops, real glass. It's one of the worst antifreeze and real race cars, big pet peeve. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, what's all right? Yeah, that, that'll be a good question. What are some of your pet peeves as a prep slash, you know, event manager that just make you want to like punch old people? Stickers on your tires. Okay. So it's a PJ show, but take the effing stickers off your tires. It's cool. You got new tires on. I'm proud of you. Thanks for contributing to the industry. Take your effing stickers off. We just spent $4,000 preparing this racetrack and I've got the first car out doing a rollout burnout and I've got tire stickers out for 60 feet that you've got to scrape off. Oh, big pet peeve. Or, or is with radio tires doing burnouts past the starting line, right? Bam. That was the next one I was going to hit on. <laughs> the, the famous, have you ever seen the video from South Georgia where I grabbed the guy's camera? It, kind of went viral it was chucky or whatever his name is uh they do us first car out and i think x and they do a screaming 10,000 rpm burnout across the line and there's two concrete stripes you know where they just knocked all the rubber off and this i don't know any of the no prep guys i, I don't watch the, it's just i don't have time to watch shows yeah and there's this redhead guy all doing it live watching the video or making a video of it on his phone and i grabbed the camera from him and turned it around in front of my face and i said i don't know who's watching this but don't fucking do that and <laughs> yeah across the line burnouts piss me off they're probably really my number one and uh, yeah. in a radial car chop it and roll I, I brought that one up because I remember there was another time I saw someone do it and like the look of rage on everybody's on the Steiner lines uh, face, even the, uh, was it Lance that used to work up at Norwalk do like the look of yep. utter rage on everybody's face. I'm like, Oh, the, you know, it's going to go beyond, you know, Bailey's, you know, little finger wag when you do something wrong. I'm like, Kurt's about to go full ape on this dude and like bust out his passenger window. I, I usually have a conversation with somebody standing behind the car. Yeah, and and you do it once. Hey, you didn't know, and it happens a lot out on the West Coast because it's just different out there. And I I don't think that they have the quality of track we have a lot of the time. And probably on a on an older non-prep surface that's not been scraped and is fresh, you can probably get away with it. And uh, it happens a lot, and they just don't understand. So you usually only got to tell them once. And then, but the second time you usually get kind of loud. <laughs> the intensity goes up a couple notches, right? It does. It does. But so that, yeah, that's a big, um, when something does happen, a car doesn't make the turn off and they put you on hold, sitting exactly where your tires are going to leave. That, that's kind of a pet peeve. Move the car back an extra foot. 
Yeah. And um, um, <laughs> clutch guys that don't have it together. Uh, I, I used to hate coyote stock. Hated it because it destroyed the track so hard. Now that they got clutch tamers on. It's my favorite class. I love that class. Yeah. Um, but every now and then you get that clutch guy that just doesn't have a clue. It's like a magic eraser for a track surface. Yeah. <laughs> when I call it using the, the track as a clutch. And yeah. Hey, we'll just spin the tires real hard and the car will eventually go. It'll work itself out. Yeah. And you got two foot long pure white pieces of concrete. Well, uh, other other pet peeves. Um, antifreeze and race cars. Yeah. Not caring if your car's leaking. That's one of my, hey, you know your car's got a, a drip. We're letting it go, but let's get that fixed. The guy who doesn't care, I don't want him on my racetrack because that drip's going to turn into an oil down. And, uh, yeah, that's, you can definitely tell those that care and those that don't. And I become one who cares and one who doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> because you're like, I really don't want to have to clean up the mess that you're potentially going to make yeah. soon. And not just that, I don't want to pick you out of a car. Yeah. Because you oiled yourself down and wadded yourself up. I mean, that's the other side of our job is, is we're the first guy to the car. <laughs> yeah. And you, you know, you, you have to sometimes, you know, let's call it how it is. Sometimes us racers aren't the sharpest knives in a crayon box and we're not going to make the best decision. And we need someone to go, Hey, you know what, you know what champ, let's, let's not do that. Let's just not. Yeah. And I've gotten much better about that. I used to really be of an attitude that you're 18, you know what you're doing. You strap yourself in the car, go get it. But yeah, you do as, as age and treachery hits me, I realize I sometimes have to be, or we as the starting line area, we have to be the voice of reason. And I, I seriously, I used to be, please wear seatbelts because it makes it easier to find you. Other than that, go do it. Yeah. yeah I'm not that way anymore. And you come on to enough mangled people that you just don't want to see that anymore. No doubt. Well, Kurt, our time here is coming to an end and I like to have fun with my guests and ask fun questions. And for you, here's your scenario. You get to build the ultimate dream team to put together the greatest racing event in the history of drag racing. Where oh. are you going to have this event? What classes are going to run? And then who you're going to work with to make this all happen. Like you could go through back history and get whoever you want. You know, you've got a time machine and an unlimited budget and you're going to build this event. That's just going to smash every event ever. What's it going to be? You know, what, what's, what's your dream event? Orange County dragway. It's going to be top fuel. Funny car. Nostalgia style. 64 to a hundred cars. Who is it? Am I going to have in it from the track prep side? I mean, there again, we're talking about quick events. I'd want Tyler in it. I'd want Ralph. I'd want Jimmy. Um, and Wade. Uh, I'd want that crew. And uh, Thomas Dennis. Uh, Raleigh Miller overseeing things. Raleigh is the best detail-oriented guy in a tower you can have. Um He's a prick when he needs to be a prick, and, and he moves the show fast. Uh, I'd want Graham Light right next to him. Um, as far as racers, 
wouldn't it be cool to see uh, Woody in a funny car? Um, I mean, just uh, I, I can't name racers because there's so many of them. Um, no, no, no need to worry about the racers. You got the classic. Yeah. And that, that, that right there would be amazing. But, yeah, I, I, I would love to see a modern Orange County style 64 car event and uh, having Bill Bader announce it and with Brian Loans. Oh, and uh, I mean, they, I think they're the two best announcers there are. There'd be so much energy coming out of that mic. Oh. You, you could charge your car battery. Absolutely. Um, Chris Blair promoting it. Um, what else would be fun, Ralph? What would be, uh, have some of the good old freak shows? Uh, I, I miss freak shows. People and, blowing uh, themselves up in boxes and monster trucks and absolutely. I mean, watching the casket blow up—that's always fun. And actually being close to it and going and retrieving him. Yeah. You know, he's completely dazed. He's still alive. You, you good but, dog? But he's, he's completely dazed for five minutes. That shit's real. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the first time I saw that and I had to explain it to the person that was with me. And they're like, say that again. I'm like, yeah, the dude's going to get in the box. They're going to blow him up. Like he chooses to do this. I'm like, he gets paid to do this. Okay. I'll do one more quick. I mean, I got just a funny story that I think you guys will appreciate. Um, And this is obviously I was not there. This is before my time. This is folklore, but I know what happened. Um, so Les Shockley, when he first brought the three engine truck out, that was a big deal. And Moats, you know, at Norwalk, Summit Motorsports Park, Night Under Fire, once you're in the show, you're in the show. And it's kind of a big deal. So Moats had ran that deal forever with his jet truck. And part of the show is Phantom of the Opera comes on, lights go all the way out, and Moats does his thing. Well, this is back when Shockley owned Shockwave. You know, Chris owns it now, but Shockley owned it back then. And uh, Senior, Bill Vader Senior, is telling them what's going to happen here. And the lights are going to go out. You're going to make a run. Shockley wouldn't do it. And Bill's like, not doing it isn't an option. Yeah. We've done this forever. He wouldn't do it. He wanted the lights on. And you lose the effect. I mean, you've seen it. When you see this thing with the lights off, it's freaking incredible. So uh, a guy that had worked at Norwalk for a long time, incredibly, he's a great guy. He would do anything for you. And uh, where this comes down to is we'll jump forward to the two trucks firing up. And... uh, they're winding the motors up and the lights go out. And down at the other end of the track, two road flares go up with a guy holding them in a Y, standing at the quarter mile in the middle of the track. Oh. The compromise was a light at the very end of the track to aim at. And they needed some way to put a light at the quarter mile to aim at. And the only way they came up with in the heat of the moment was to have a guy standing with road flares. He stood in between two hundred two 210-mile-an-hour trucks with 16-foot parachutes on a quarter-mile jet truck. 
<laughs> yeah. Like, did that to say that takes balls is an understatement, number one. And number two, if the insurance company actuaries knew Motorola. that was happening, it would look like that scene in scanners where micro ironsides making people's heads explode. They just you're right. They, they Joe, lose it. Joe, Joe would say hold if you're watching this. This is fiction. This yeah. just didn't happen. <laughs> this, this is uh, I'm making this up. <laughs> this, just just an illusion. Yeah, if let's just say if this happened, but no, this it was a real deal. And uh, uh, and hearing him tell the story, he's still alive. It's comical. I <laughs> I have been on the outside of the walls when a jet truck goes by the first sixty feet, and that's a uh, interesting experience. At the quarter yeah. mile mark, two going by at full tilt. Yeah, that's a. Uh, that, that's someone that you don't mess with because they're not well. They're not afraid to die. Not afraid to die. No, they're, they're painful. I mean, last year Ralph and I sat through uh, when moats burned on the starting line. Yeah, I, I remember that, that quite well. It is, it is the only time in my career not being in a race car, I thought I was going to die. I really thought this might be the end. I'm worried about N Nettie was with me. <clears throat> We're hiding behind. Uh, beast from the east i can't think of his name his pickup truck was just happened to be parked at the starting line and the four of us are hiding behind his truck it's so hot you can't expose yourself i really thought this could be it i was across the track shooting when that happened my wife was directly by the truck and she was taking video of that and didn't realize things were going sideways in a hurry until she goes, it got really hot more than normal. And I had to run. I'm like, well, you did, you did the right thing. Thank you. Yep. Because I thought we were about to see something go boom, or we were going to see Mr. Moats try to, you know, do his best impersonation of a creme brulee again. I know. I, uh, I, it was, it was scary. It was when I saw the fire truck coming down the drag strip, I was, uh, I mean, obviously we ran and, we ran towards the downside and then Evan and I come out with water fire extinguishers and that was like peeing on it. Yeah. But boy, when that fire truck finally got there, that was, that was one of the best things I ever saw. Relieving moment. Well, Kurt, our time here has come to an end and I give my guests their opportunity to do, to, to thank all their sponsors, tell people what they got going on and everything else. So the floor is your, my friend, pull your John force and thank everybody got to thank and the whole deal. I mean, people i gotta thank i can um bill bader jr he came up with this whole deal this uh tvc is is his brainchild and uh and he's been a great mentor and and friend uh ralph ralph sitting next to me Mabier, he's uh he's been with me from the beginning can't ask for a better guy netty for sticking with me um jason from vp um uh, I mean, he really helps with product. He helped really get me in. You know, Jason was responsible for Rage. And uh, and Rage is what really got me going as far as radial type prep work. Uh, I couldn't have done this without Brent Jones. Um, yeah, huge. He's a great fabricator. Uh, he designed most all of our stuff. I'd draw it, and then he'd make it real. And so Brent's been – we're actually on, on our way to his shop right now. He's been – instrumental in all this 
Um, other than that, I mean, there's so many people that all the racetracks that kind of put faith in us and, uh, and are willing to listen. Uh, we got great stuff happening with PRI and SEMA right now. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad they put some faith in us. Where could someone learn more about what you do and where it's all at? Come to PRI next week. And uh, our booth is 1640. If you are a track promoter or operator, one to three o'clock on Friday, we're having uh, what's called top seminars, a whole bunch of new programs coming out that PRI is helping us with. And top stands for track operator and promoter sanctioning bodies. Um, there's a PRI is really getting behind the racetracks. They understand that racetracks are the building block of the aftermarket performance. So they're getting behind it. And I really appreciate PRI and Dr. Jamie Meyer for, for working with us on that. And I think you'll see incredible things come out of this. Um, other than that, just everybody that, that puts faith in us and, uh, uh, we're learning stuff all the time. Our schedule is jammed with grinding. We're grinding from now until March and, uh, and either grinding or putting new surface on. So appreciate that. Um, guy named Norm Roach, who, uh, who really helped me with concrete and understand concrete for 30 years. Um, so other than that, gosh, you guys and the other media people that get to BS with around the starting line. Always fun conversations. Always fun. Now, Especially the ones that we can't repeat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, again, that's the uh, the, the inside of the inside that people sometimes don't understand. That, uh, <laughs> no, we're not laughing with you. We're probably laughing at you. Laughing you're doing something you. very stupid. Yep. Well, Kurt, thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, this is actually going to air the Thursday of PRI. So I will see you this coming week at PRI. Swing we, by. We will have fun. All right, come by. We're right next, again, booth 1640. We're right next to NMCA. All right, Kurt. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks, Brian. You take care.